Welcome to the 445th episode of the Jamie Delaney Plant-Based Wellness Podcast. My name is Jamie Delaney, and I'm your host. I'm a plant-based cardiologist and endurance athlete living in Southwest Florida. Well, we just had Adelia go by uh, a couple days ago, and we made it. Uh, we had outer bands, some flooding in our area. Actually, the county I live in had a significant amount of flooding from the outer bands, um, but uh, no wind damage, so I was happy about that. Managed to do a treadmill interval run during uh, the storm uh, as I watched the Weather Channel, and thank God Joe Cantori was up in northern Florida and not in my town because uh, Hurricane Ian, he huddled here in Punta Gorda and watched us get destroyed. So you don't want him in your town when there's a hurricane. Um, but anyway, uh, we all made it. Um, best wishes to people cleaning up in North Florida and Georgia and South Carolina. It's a lot to go through. It's a scary time, but uh, we all managed to get together and uh, get through things. So as far as my running, um, and I'll talk a little bit more about that, we have 100K in October, and then following that in November is our swim run. I actually did make it to the pool this week and uh, did a pool session. Uh, didn't feel that bad after I got started. I got to tell you, the first 100 yards were a little brutal. Uh, it's like I hadn't been in the water for some time. Wasn't sure my shoulders were still attached, but got through that. Felt pretty good about it. So I'm going to start swimming once a week regularly. You heard it here first uh, for that swim run in November. And then um, we're going to tackle our first 100 miler in January. So a lot of work to be done. If you listened to the podcast last week and stuck through it, I appreciate it. Uh, but I talked about a lot about the Leadville 100 trail race. And some of you mentioned that I think she's going to do it. And I think you're right. I think we want to try. Uh, Lord willing, and the, we're all able and everything's okay. So um, training has begun. Let's put it that way. And again, I'm going to talk a little bit more about that. But it's going to take a year to get this 61-year-old, 62 on the start line, ready for Leadville, but I'm going to give it my best shot, I believe. My strength training is revolving around my lofty goals of, to be able to do a pistol squat, a single-leg squat, and the pull-up and push-ups, and everything that goes into training for those things. So I think that makes me pretty rounded if I do things that will make me be able to ultimately do those moves as my goal. Uh, so that's really where what I'm doing at this stage as far as strength training sessions. So I'm getting to my little gym in the office as much as I can. Again, uh, with Leadville in mind, I know I've got to be strong, both upper and lower body and core. Um, we continue to have our balance class, mobility class in the office that is focusing a lot on core training and anchor positioning and it's really helping me as the instructor um, do one see one do one teach one uh, quite a bit so um, practicing what I preach there and being very mindful of my core when I'm running or lifting or doing any of those things and um, how it was explained to me by Dr. Peebles um, you can maybe make a link to his uh, course online I believe it's very good um, you have anchors in the lower front ribs, the lower back ribs, and uh, your pubic bone. And that really brings your core together, both in the front and the back and the sides. And how those are engaged 
um, really helps the, um, you to do more complex movements, um, such as running and squats and deadlifts and so forth. So um, we've been doing that in class and working on those. And so that's, that's keeping me very motivated because I know my back and my core has to be in really good shape if I'm going to tackle these longer runs. I also know that I can't just do what I always do or want to do and just increase my mileage and get ready for another race. Um, this one's going to be, um, you know, 100 miles of any distance, whether it's flat or hilly, but certainly a mountainous race is going to require some uh, specific training, especially with some of the um, time deadlines. So I'm also setting a plan in motion, um, breaking out the segments of the 100K and the 50 milers that we have coming up in the early spring uh, leading up to Leadville next summer um, to incorporate some specific work so that I'm ready to go. You can't wait to the last minute to try to figure these things out or to implement them. So um, that is one of the biggest reasons for my interval workout. Um, number Interval workout number one uh, was this week to increase my VO2 max and uh, to make my body handle uh, lactate a little bit better as time goes on. So it would be my weak link. And uh, from what I've read, you should get your weak links, uh, work on them early so that you can fine-tune the things that you're good at later on. So um, those sessions are I'm going to very carefully implement, I should say, uh, into my training as opposed to doing what I really love and just go out and do long, slow runs all the time uh, and enjoy the scenery. So I'm going to have to get a little bit more focused and uh, put a plan into um, in the process of putting a plan together um, that'll take me week by week, month by month to try to achieve these goals. So it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun planning uh, things out. It's like planning a vacation, so to speak. You're planning your route on how to get there. And uh, yes, it's a very lofty goal to consider running a 100-mile distance starting at this stage in my running career. I've run marathons for a lot of years, triathlons for a lot of years, uh, but this trail running stuff is is still relatively new. Um, So how's that compared to a health journey? Um, Don't worry, I'm not going to talk all about ultra running this podcast. We're going to actually move right into nutrition and, and health journeys. Because it is very important to have a, have a goal in mind when it comes to your health journey and a plan in mind uh, when it comes to your health journey and also the pieces that go to how you're going to implement that plan as you go along. So the first question I would ask in a health journey is, what are you looking to do? Uh, are you looking to stay healthy because you're young and you feel you're healthy and you just want to avoid lifestyle diseases? Do you have lifestyle diseases such as diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol? Are you overweight? Do you want to reverse those things? Do you want to try to prevent cancer, uh, prevent cancer from returning, um, reverse kidney disease, prevent kidney disease from getting worse? Uh, Perhaps you're trying to look to improve your immune function, uh, decrease autoimmune symptoms that you may have, such as arthritis or lupus. These are all goals, um, ultimate goals that people would have for a health journey. A lot of times when I ask people in the office, you know, I get um, very nonspecific goals. I just want to get healthy. Reminds me 
about when I was doing a term paper, you know, in junior high school. It's like you got to narrow it down. Uh, so what do you really want? You know, I want to be healthy. Everybody wants to be healthy. But so what are your specific goals in mind? Sometimes people are afraid to say it because they don't think they really have any uh, input into their ultimate health. It's they're a victim of what happens to them with their health. It's their hereditary, uh, it's their hereditary genetic disposition. Um, it's where they live. It's who they live with. So they don't have any control and they just say, oh, whatever. Um, some people think they're going to be a victim of heart disease or cancer because people in their family and something else happens. And, you know, it's hard to believe because they didn't see that coming out of left field. But uh, nevertheless, it's, it's good to have a health journey. I've talked in the past about, you know, fitness. Can you get off the floor without using your hands? Can you do push-ups? Uh, can you walk at a certain speed, you know, that's moving? You know, those are all good health indicators that things are going pretty well. But even if they are, it doesn't, again, necessarily um, guarantee a future or um, help you to plan uh, to prevent some of these other lifestyle diseases. I would guess the majority of people just float through life, um, you know, getting one illness after another, and it just seems to come upon them. Uh, there was no paddling away from trying to get away from the disease or trying to prevent it. Um, it just seems to go down the river, and whatever jumps in the boat is what happens. Um, also, a lot of people complain about their circumstances um, that you know, aren't meeting their health goals. Uh, maybe they don't have time. They don't have the support. Of course, the weather's always a factor. It's too cold, too hot, too wet. Uh, they're too busy. Um, and they really don't have a plan of attack for how they're going to prevent or reverse any of these things. Um, you know, maybe I'm going to try to eat better, but again, that's nonspecific. So what exactly, where exactly are you and what exactly do you need to do? And how much time do you think it will take to accomplish it? You know, so how should you space it out? So, um, again, the running example is if I'm going to train for a marathon, I'm going to need somewhere between 12 and 16 weeks to get ready for it from scratch. Um, depending on your training, you may have just done a half marathon, so you just need to ramp up a little bit. So depending on where you are, is, it has a lot to do with how you're going to make a plan and implement it. And a lot of people, even if they have a plan, they don't ever look at that, the plan. They have a plan, and then they just somewhat ignore it and hope that it falls into place without really looking at the details of the plan. We've had people tell us, that just tell me what to eat, and I'll do it. I don't need to know the, necess the nitty-gritty details. But the reality of it is, yes, you do need to know the nitty-gritty details because I'm not going to be in the kitchen with you. I'm not going to be in the grocery store with you. And you need to be in charge of what's going to be on your plate. Otherwise, you know, again, you have a whole host of excuses why it's not working. My biggest pet peeve here recently has been devices. Devices that people have to monitor their health that they either don't look at or they're not aware of or they just plain don't use. So it may be a scale um, because there's so many things out there that are negative about a scale. Yes, it's true. You're not going to lose a pound every day. So why get on a scale? But if you're somebody that retains fluid, retains water, um, 
you may gain two or three pounds or lose two or three pounds in a day. Uh, if you have high blood pressure, it's going to be very important to get on a scale every day to look at water weight uh, from eating too much salt, um, which is going to drive your blood pressure. And even if you're just trying to lose weight and everything else about you is healthy, getting on that scale is a, as another sense of accountability. So you know that um, you know the result of what you ate the night before, even if it's just too much salt and you gain water weight. Um, it's something to look at and adjust. So you have the ability to just if adjust something if you're monitoring that metric. But if you don't know, then there's no way to know what was causing the problem. Smart watches, you know, everybody you see, everybody you see on TVs wearing some sort of a smart watch. Um, the majority of the newer Apple watches have the ability to do EKGs and to look at your instant heart rhythm. Very few people know how to do one. Very few people know how to download it into their phone to be able to send it to their doctor uh, via text. Um, so they just ignore it and they don't do it. They may have uh, elevated heart rate, but they forget all about the watch. And, the, and, and it's so helpful for me as a physician to be able to get an EKG from someone and that's, that's you know, noting irregular heartbeats or slow heart rates or dizziness, and I can look at that EKG and, and uh, get some insight into what's going on. So even if you can't interpret it, gathering the data for someone else that can interpret it is extremely important and something that should be used. Wearable glucose monitors, um, these are a big, uh, big uh, thing that you look at. Uh, I bet if you go into a gym, you'll see 50% of people wearing the little patch on their arms. I noticed a bunch of people at the race having the patch on their arms. I've had people come in the office with the patch on the arms. The way the companies suck you in is they'll give you a two-week supply to try it. Um, and then you're on the hook to buy it, or you can uh, sign up for a nutritional plan. So a dietitian in a box uh, will give you a cut and paste meal to uh, help you adjust your glucose. Um, you know, they, the longer I looked at plans today, the uh, longer you sign up, the cheaper it is, but they're quite expensive, um, especially when the majority of people never look at the app to see what their glucose did, and they don't know how to use it because they don't know what they're looking for. Um, you know, typically you want to see what your glucose is before you eat, um, hour, two hours after you eat, before you go to bed in the morning, uh, see trends after specific meals and correlate what you're eating with, with what the, the app shows. But I think most people just, um, depend on people that looks at the data very historically two weeks in the, in the rears. Uh, and it doesn't give them any day-to-day feedback. So it's just a waste of money if you're not going to use it correctly. Um, you know, heart rate monitors, um, they're great. They're great for exercise. Uh, they're great to be able to set a pace so you know if you're going fast enough or you're not going or you're going too fast. Um, you can look back at the data and see, see how you're doing. Plain old GPS and know your mileage and pace is huge, but very few people actually track how far they went on an app day to day and how long it took them and what their pace was. Why have the watch if you're not going to use it? Um, you know, so it's really important. Uh, I mean, you could do it simple. You could say, you know, you're going to go out and walk for 40 minutes and how far did you get uh, just by noting what street you got to. That's, you know, that's plenty good as long as you're going to use that information to try to make yourself better uh, and see if you're getting better or getting worse over time. So you have to be able to record it. 
plain old calendar is still a great way to go um, because if you record what you're doing after every workout, um, then you can look at your progress day to day, week to week, year to year, and, and see how you're doing. A lot of the apps have that ability too, but it's kind of nice to be able to see a calendar and, and look and see what you've accomplished. I think one of the main reasons people don't wear or look at these apps or devices is they don't want to see that they're not doing well. Um, you know, everybody's gung-ho for the first couple of days, and then they um, fall off, and, and they, they just don't want to track the data. They don't charge the watch, don't put it on, uh, don't have the EKG app available, you know, don't record their walks. Um, it, it's, it's uh, you know, again, another way to put your head in the sand. Um, and, you know, it's basically you're falling off the plan. And you can't get to your goals if you're not tracking your progress. Another excuse people give me is that they're bored with vegetables. There's 40,000 of them, um, and most people can eat most of them. Uh, You know, it's uh, looking at different ways of preparing things that make them more interesting. Um, People are afraid they're going to be deficient of something. The biggest one is being protein deficient. Um, It's very rare for somebody to be protein deficient. Uh, It typically is somebody that... um, is probably, you know, um, hypermetabolic, such as somebody that has an ongoing cancer or somebody that has a, a bad heart condition that uh, their, their body's kind of catabolizing itself. Um, but it's, it's really pretty rare for me to see somebody with a, a protein deficient state. Sometimes post-op, somebody's had a big surgery, the protein, or they've had an illness uh, that's been prolonged, uh, you know, a pneumonia or something that they've been in the hospital with. And, you know, we have to get people built up a little bit, but walking around, um, having lifestyle diseases and being overweight, um, people aren't protein deficient. Same way is that people don't really look at their plate and say, you know, am I getting enough nitric oxide producing greens? Am I getting enough fiber? Um, you know, how can I make that better? Do my, am I getting enough cruciferous vegetables if you're trying to decrease your cancer recurrent risk? How many different kinds can I get? What are the quality of some of those cruciferous vegetables? Are they better cooked? Are they better steamed? Um, what about mushrooms? You know, Can I get mushrooms in more than once, more than one way? Should I add some mushroom powder to my, to my stir fries uh, to make things better? You know, Those are things that can help you work the plan nutritionally. Um, as opposed to worried about not getting enough comfort foods such as rice, pasta, bread, you know, um, and even potatoes to some degree. But mainly I would have to say it's hummus, you know, so blended foods most people get way too much of. Um, Nobody's flax, chia, walnut deficient. Most people tell me they grab things by the handfuls as far as nuts go, which is way too much. Um, you know, it's not about having too few omega-3s, but usually too much of omega-6s, uh, which are in the form of nuts and oils that infiltrate every processed food that people come around. A guy that I interviewed a long time ago, Josh Lajani, talked about ghost foods, and that's another thing, that people don't count what they're sort of counter-surfing. Uh, grabbing a bite of this, grabbing a bite of that. Most people throw poor grapes under the bus saying they eat too many grapes and that's what caused the problem. It's not that. It's just continuous counter-surfing, continuous taking a bite of this, taking a bite of that. Perhaps you cook for your spouse and, you, and the spouse is not plant-based. 
Um, you know, are you tasting this, tasting that? Are you a cook that tastes this and tastes that? If you're eating highly processed, high-calorie-dense food and you're tasting, it, it all adds up, and that never makes the journal. And that's going to keep you off and make looking at your metrics very difficult. If your glucose goes up after two hours after you eat, you know, is it two hours after dinner or was it the, you know, the things you ate before dinner, you know, surfing the counters or making food? So you have to be quite aware and mindful of what your goal is and, and what's going on. Long-term consistency leads to good outcomes and a good health journey as opposed to, you know, yo-yo diets where you're on again, off again, uh, and not really following the plan to get to the ultimate goal. I was told today of a book, I don't even know the name of it, but it was supposed to be to boost your metabolism diet, and the person was to eat every five meals and a snack um, so that you're eating frequently, and the idea is the more you eat, the more your metabolism gets revved up, and if you're not eating often enough, your body thinks it's starving and it holds on to calories. That is a huge debunked myth. Now, the way that sells books, however, is that if you sell a book and say, hey, you can eat whole foods, I don't care if they're plant-based or not, but you can eat whole foods, not processed, five, time, five times a day and have a small snack on the sixth time, and you compare that to eating out five days a week or eating highly processed foods and junk food and snacking all the time, that dietary plan is actually going to work for a while because what you've done is you've cut down somebody's calories. So you're letting them eat, but you're controlling what they ate with that book, and it will work for a period of time. What it doesn't do is allow your body to rest. If you're always digesting something, your body's always having to make insulin, you never are letting yourself become um, depleted enough or hungry enough to actually know that you're hungry. You're just continuously grazing. Ultimately, you're not going to be able to get to your weight loss goal. Your insulin levels are going to be high. That's going to drive inflammation. Um, it's going to drive secondary side effects, insulin-like growth factor that may drive cancers uh, with too much insulin and so forth. So that's not a good way to go for the long run. But again, it'll sell a book because it's less painful than actually becoming mindful of, gee, you know, am I, am I truly getting hungry because I have digested all the food I ate for breakfast or lunch or dinner? Or do I just have the once because I'm bored? And how do I deal with that? Um, you know, it kind of takes me back to the Ozempic type of thing uh, where people say that, well, the Ozempic pill alters brain chemistry so that people don't crave junk food as much. It's a pretty long stretch, but even if it has some merit, not teaching people how to eat correctly is not doing them any benefit. So that if they just eat less junk food because they're nauseated all the time and they have um, a neuropathy of their stomach and they can't empty, you're causing pathology in, in and of itself. But if you're just teaching people to eat fewer uh, or a lower amount of junk food or a lower, lesser amount of processed food because you're sick, it's not doing anything to make somebody healthy. So will they lose some weight early on? Sure. Could they even maintain loss? Sure. But it's not ultimately the result is not making somebody more healthy. Um, if they lose weight and still get cancer and die, well, that doesn't really help them out. 
uh, if they have a, a, a neuropathy of their intestinal tract, and again, that causes dysmotility and, and overall infections and inflammation, that's really not doing them any favor. If the same chemical that appears to decrease their desire for junk food also makes them depressed, well, then that's not doing them any favor. So all of these hacks tend to have side effects on the back, which don't let us deal with reality and don't let us be mindful about what we're actually doing and take control of our health. We become victims then, victims of side effects of disease, victims that you can't control um, yourself, so you need some mind-altering medication to control you. It's not necessary. Do you ever notice that people don't miss their multivitamin, but they also but they often miss their walk? Um, because it's easy to take a multivitamin or a supplement, but it's harder to get out the door every morning. So people may put four or five days together, but then they miss for some reason, and the next thing you know, they're not going to do it. Um, you know, I've talked over and over again. Lay your stuff out the night before, so you're ready to go. Keep yourself accountable. Keep the keep the calendar going. Uh, you're much more likely to succeed. That should be talked about in the medical practice as opposed to supplements that may help you sit on the couch and uh, or supplements that allow you to sit on the couch and and have the perception that you're going to become more healthy because you're taking these supplements that are either going to increase your metabolism or decrease your anxiety or um, you know prevent cancer. It's not going to happen. Nothing happens sitting sitting around uh, on the couch taking supplements that is not going to be accomplished by whole foods and exercise. It does make a whole lot of money, though, for the practice. Um, there are some very good physicians out there that, that start to talk a good game but then realize that it's too hard to keep talking the good game and they become too frustrated and they just sell supplements. Uh, you can make more money, make it quicker, and not have to worry about driving it home and keeping people accountable. And I can tell you it's exhausting. It is really exhausting to keep people on track. And I believe the main reason is, is they haven't really set the goal or they don't really believe in the goal that they want to achieve. Because most of the time when people want something, they'll do anything to try to get a shot at making that goal. So if you have a watch that measures your heart rate, and almost every smart watch does, uh, by doing a near-infrared light on your wrist capillary, it is a great tool to look at. Your heart rate when you wake up every morning is going to be nearly the same. Unless you're sick, your heart rate will go up in the morning. If your glucose are abnormally elevated, your heart rate will go up. If you're um, very much overtrained or overfatigued, lack of sleep, lack of rest, your heart rate will still start to go up in the morning. Your resting overall heart rate is very important to know. If you have a resting heart rate in the 80s, you're most likely very deconditioned or anemic. If your heart rate goes above 100, but it's regular, you either have an infection, anemia, very deconditioned, an electrolyte abnormality, dehydration. Um, so there's really good things that can, can come out of watching a heart rate, heart rate overnight. Most people don't know what their heart rate does when they're sleeping because they're sleeping. People that are prone to rhythms and atrial fibrillation being one of the most dangerous arrhythmias that you can have with regard to uh, having a stroke may occur in the night because people have sleep apnea. So knowing and looking at your watch and your heart rate profile on your smartwatch after wearing your watch to bed, you can get an idea of something bad is going on while you're sleeping. 
there are many people that have been referred to as psychiatrists because um, they are having so-called anxiety attacks when they're really not having anxiety attacks. They're truly having a tachycardia that needs to be addressed. Um, a lot of women are put off early on and said, well, you're just crazy. You're having an anxiety attack. Here, take these pills. When the reality of it is they truly have an irregular heart rhythm. So having a watch that records that can really help you start to, 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 to um, you know, tease things out. On the other hand, if your heart rate's nice and low and it's the same when you wake up and you exercise and your heart rate comes right down very quick, those are all great prognostic indicators. Uh, and, and can really help you track your progress if, if they become better over time. Home blood pressure monitoring um, can be good and it can be bad. The first thing is you have to have a good device. The device actually has to fit your arm. Most people need a larger cuff than what comes with the machine. So a large cuff, uh, if your cuff is too small, it will overread your blood pressure and you'll have a higher blood pressure than in reality. So you need to have the right cuff. You need to have it on correctly. If your blood pressure, if you're taking a wrist uh, blood pressure and your arm is big, uh, it may be very difficult for it to pick up. If you have an irregular heart rate, uh, it decreases the accuracy of a blood pressure cuff uh, reading. So those are things that need to be taken into account. But it also helps to know what your blood pressure has been running on a day-to-day basis, not just when you're feeling great. You know, most people pull out the old cuff when everything is going good. But what happens when you've had a stressful day? What is your blood pressure like? What happens if you go out to dinner and have a salty meal? What's your blood pressure like? You know, those things are good to know. If you just keep taking your blood pressure over and over and over again, chances are the adrenaline is going to drive your blood pressure up. So I don't suggest that. Certainly if you're having headaches or, you know, double vision or anything like that, checking your blood pressure can be good. But if you wake up in the middle of night, that is not the time to check your blood pressure unless you're absolutely ill uh, and you're worried about, you know, you're having one of these symptoms or a stroke. But just to wake up in the night to monitor your blood pressure is going to be counter uh, counterproductive. You can look back and say, gee, my blood pressure is high. What I eat today? And it could be that you went out and you had some sort of soup or you had beans and rice from a restaurant that were highly, soda, highly salted. That will drive your blood pressure. A lot of people come into the office and say they're borderline diabetic. Most of the people that are borderline diabetic are, are full-blown diabetic, but somebody has just kind of given them a little bit of a pass. If your hemoglobin A1C is over 5 five and a half, five or five and a half, um, you're probably a diabetic. You can call it pre-diabetes, but your insulin levels are too high. It's driving inf- in, in inflammation. It's driving uh, growth factors that, that ultimately cause problems. And, it will, and your glucose being up will also drive your heart rate because it, it causes you to be dehydrated. If you've got extra glucose in your blood, it's going to make your blood thicker. So you end up retaining some volume and then peeing it out uh, because of the osmolality, and that will drive your heart rate up. So, um, of course, if you're ill, it you drives your heart rate up. Um, if you're on steroids and you take and you have an infection and you're borderline diabetic, your glucose goes up, your heart rate can go up. So those are all things that you can monitor and then see how they resolve or address them as you go. Unfortunately, most physicians' offices are just going to be writing a prescription for some of these things and not really looking at 
what has changed, and what can we do about it without jumping to a prescription pad. One of the best ways to fix hypertension early on is just do a juice fast or a water fast. If you're otherwise healthy and you fast for a couple of days, your blood pressure will come right down. Um, that's long, you know. Um, if you do a juice fast, even uh, if you take some medications and you just uh, drink vegetable juices for a couple of days or so, you'll see your blood pressure come right down. So then you'll know it's nutritionally driven, uh, and that can help out a whole lot. I just want to touch on scientific studies a, a little bit here at the end of the podcast because. Um, I get sent uh, a lot of emails saying, have you read this study? Can you look at this? Can you listen to this? I've read that this, you know, this a study was done and showed blank. Um, and this is why I'm going to do it. A lot of physicians themselves will go on the word of the pharmaceutical industry representative that comes uh, into their office and shows them a printout of a study showing that there's been a marked improvement in some parameter uh, and a reason why they should prescribe a medication. Um, so a lot of a lot of physicians can't look at a study and discern whether or not it's actually a good study or a bad study. Most studies have most studies are flawed. Almost every study is flawed. Uh, the question is, are they intentionally flawed or are they flawed just because it's a study and it can't address everything or control for everything? And one recent study uh, that I believe is an intentionally flawed uh, was that of testosterone uh, supplementation. So it was flawed in, um, in how it was performed uh, and how they got around the data. And, and you have to remember that the FDA... In pharmaceutical industry, there's a bit of a revolving door as far as who works for when, who works for whom, and when. So if you're in the FDA not making that much, it'd be great to get a pharmaceutical job. If you'd like to have a position of power someday, then you might want to work your way up in the government. So back and forth, back and forth, you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. But one of the things that happened with testosterone, the FDA suggested that they do a study to say, is this safe or not? Because it's out there and it's becoming, everybody's treating this condition called low T, uh, low testosterone levels. Not be, you know, it's uh, never before that we check people's hormone levels and decide to treat, because hormones are like are feedback loops. Your body makes hormones and it feedbacks to your pituitary and your thyroid and decrease um, in your hypothalamus and you know then less hormone is made or more hormone is made. And it's difficult to tell uh, with just a random sample of a hormone where the problem is and if there truly is a problem because these things tend to vary throughout the day, through time, and, and all kinds of other circumstances. But the first thing that you know attracted people to low testosterone and low T is are you feeling tired or fatigued? Okay, so if you look at a 45 to 70, 80-year-old man, and you say, you know, are you as energetic as you were when you were 18? Are you feeling tired? You know, so you got this guy on three blood pressure medicines, a cholesterol medicine. He has vascular disease. He hasn't ran a mile since he was 16. Yeah, I think I am more tired. My testosterone's low. You can feel better if you take this, or you can have bigger muscles uh, if you take these drugs. Um, so it's very attractive to try to fix something um, that, geez, you know, it's just my, uh, my, my pituitary or it's just my hypothalamus that's, that's kind of out of whack, uh, that I'm not producing the testosterone that I should be producing. And that's what's feeling, causing me all the problems. 
But testosterone, just like estrogen, um, it's a it's a kind of a final hormone path, and it works in a lot of different areas in the body, not just uh, you know in 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 the more of the endocrine function. And so there's concern whether giving somebody exogenous hormones might increase the risk of cancer, particularly in the case of testosterone, prostate cancer, or will increase the risk of heart attacks, just like estrogen increased the risk of rate of heart attacks in women that were given postmenopausal estrogen. So we're going to fix low estrogen by giving estrogen, and lo and behold, they got cancer of the uterus and they had heart attacks. So that was, that was niche. Now we have men. We're going to do the same thing to them, but we're going to expect something different. So the FDA says... Uh, maybe we should do a study to make sure this is safe. So if you are a drug company and you're going to design a trial to prove that your drug was safe, how would you do it? And so the company actually did what was called a non-inferiority type study, meaning not that it was great, not that we proved that people live longer or live better, but it wasn't any worse than not taking it at all. So right then and there, we've lowered the bar. So it's not going to be any worse than if you hadn't taken it. Um, the next way to get a results of, uh, of a study, don't look very long. So this study was only two years long. So it really is hard to find the long-term side effects of something when you're not looking very long. The next thing to... Um, to look at is, well, if you don't give very much of the drug, then perhaps you won't see the side effects of the drug. And that's exactly what they did in this study. They gave a very low dose. So they started out with somebody that just had mildly reduced testosterone, gave them just a little bit to get them over the low normal range, followed them for a short period of time, and then looked at the results and did some statistics and said, well, um, it increases your risk of heart attack, but not that much. Um, and, of course, the study limitations were, you know, various things um, like we talked about before. So, again, some of these studies, if you didn't look at it, it's like, well, you know, the conclusion and the way it was kind of written was it's not inferior to um, not taking anything with regard to the symptoms. But this heart attack thing was... So unless you're looking for things like that, you can become very fooled. And it's really important if you're a man and you're starting to take a supplement and you're in the age range of heart attacks that you're going to take something to increase your risk of a heart attack or potentially increase your risk of, of cancer. So, yeah, you know, unfortunately, you have to be very, very careful on how things, things are worded. On the other hand, a bit of a positive study... Uh, there was a study actually published in the journal uh, uh, Cancer Institute, uh, national, the Journal of National Cancer Institute, and they looked at lifestyle uh, and interventions such as um, exercise in people with cancer, and, and then specifically breast cancer. They looked at people that had advanced cancer, so they had positive lymph nodes, metastases, uh, were of um, a estrogen receptor negative, which is a more aggressive tumor, a larger tumor. So these were people that were, you know, had uh, pretty advanced breast cancer. And they looked to see whether or not exercise made a difference. And they did a questionnaire um, and ended up being 1,340 people. 
and they looked at the type and the duration and the frequency of their exercise and whether they started the exercise program before they were diagnosed with breast cancer or after they were diagnosed with breast cancer, and they followed them for seven and a half years. So it's a pretty good follow-up when you look at traditional cancer studies are looking at five-year survival rates, right? And what they found was that if you looked at physical ther- physical guidelines, and I've talked about it before, moderate intensity and vigorous intensity, if they did two and a half to five hours of moderate intensity exercise or one and a quarter to two and a half hours of vigorous intensity, meaning that you're really getting your heart rate up near you know, 80%, uh, a week, just a week, and they started it before they were diagnosed and they kept it uh, going, they had a 55% reduction in the recurrence of their cancer and a 68% reduction in the chance of death from any cause over the seven and a half year period. That's a pretty good number. You know, and the side effects of exercise, uh, maybe some sore muscles, maybe, uh, you know, you might fall and twist something once in a while, a little backache, a little sciatica, but for the most part, that's a really good result. If you didn't start exercising until after you were diagnosed with cancer, but you continued to do it, you had a 46% reduction in recurrence and a 43% decrease in death from any cause. So why wouldn't every oncologist on the face of this earth tell people that exercise is one of the most important things that they need to do and you need to do it and here's how we're going to keep you accountable. It's the most important thing that you can do for yourself next to not eating a terrible diet or with while not eating a terrible diet that you can do to improve your quality of life and your survival. So part of your plan should be for your health journey is to look at your exercise program and see what you can do to improve it. Quit babying yourself. Quit saying it's too hot, too cold, too windy, too sunny. I don't have time. My shoes aren't right. I don't live in a good place. I work too long. Make time. I listened to a podcast this morning of a guy that has a six-year running streak, six or seven-year running streak. Never missed a day. Never ran less than three miles on average over the last seven years. He averaged over seven miles a day. And he says he, he doesn't miss it for an airline flight. Doesn't miss it if, he's gonna, if he knows he's going to have to fly out early. He gets up really early. He keeps his watch on. He lives in Eastern Standard Time. He keeps a watch set at that time so he can always make sure that he gets that run in in the 24-hour period. He always he knows that it needs to be done because it's very important to him because he wants to keep that streak alive. So he makes sure that he has a plan of action to get that run in every day. So if you have a lifestyle disease, why wouldn't you want to have an exercise streak? If you don't have a lifestyle disease, you better start exercising because it's going to do you even more good when you get a lifestyle disease if you're not doing the right thing as far as your nutrition and other things tend to happen. So um, I'm going to close on that note as far as making a plan and finding and and following the plan and being consistent day-to-day, year-to-year. Maybe you need to sign up for a 5K 
of some sort of a walk. Maybe you need to do it every two or three months. Have one on the books. Have something to look forward to with regards to your exercise. Play a game with yourself. Most of these smartwatches have ways to connect. There's an app called Strava, if you don't know about it, that's for free, that you can interact with other people with regards to your exercise, even where you exercise and how fast you go in a particular place. There are trails, like uh, apps called All Trails, where you can go on and interact with people and uh, do trails and you know how long it took you to do it or what trails you completed. There are all kinds of ways that you can help yourself to maintain consistency with exercise, but it is by far one of the most important things you can do to maintain your health. So I get a goal next August, but I get a bunch of goals in between. And the idea is to make myself as healthy and as strong as I possibly can between now and then. So whether there's a hurricane or there is a birthday party or there's a whatever we have to do, I'm going to find time to get my my workouts in so that I can try to have the best chance of achieving my goal that I possibly can. It's a lofty goal. I may, I may fail. It may take me more than one try to do it. I may repeatedly fail, but I'll be a better person having made the commitment to give it my best each and every day. Thanks for listening. If you'd like us to help you with your health journey goals, go over to drdelaney.com, D-O-C-T-O-R-D-U-L-A-N-E-Y, Check out the website. Email me at jamie at drdelaney.com. We are cheaper than a glucose monitor and a far away somebody telling you what to do with a printout. So if you really are serious and you want to get serious about your health and you need some help, we'll help you get there. Thanks for listening.